0: Welcome into the QB Sco Show. This is episode 17 brought to you by the fine folks at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. You can follow my work for BleedingGreenNation.com. Follow me on Twitter at NFL. Here with me, as always, to break down the quarterbacks around the league and entering the draft is QB1 in my heart. He is Mark Schofield. Follow him on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Mark, how you doing, brother? I'm doing
1: well. I'm doing well. I'm excited for another two months of talking about this fantastic crop of draft quarterbacks. It's going to be legendary. I'm going to open the top with a question. Mm. Okay? We usually do historical references and I'll work something in here, but I want to ask a question first of you and perhaps we could even put it to a vote on Twitter if we want or maybe just ignore it and maybe you'll just edit this out. (laughs) Better decision maker, Dave Gettleman,
0: Ned Stark, Napoleon. Oh, See Napoleon had some had some solid success. Yeah, but then
1: the, look, invading Russia, Waterloo, uh, yeah. those are pretty big blunders. I mean, you look up any list of worst military decisions ever and he's got like 2 of the 10. Yeah. Which is a bad record. And I mean, you can say you can say the same thing about Ned Stark. Look, they won Robert's rebellion.
0: Yeah, they all have like some early success to them and then even Napoleon like he came back for a little bit and Talleyrand kind of played him there. But yeah, the, the decision-making towards the end was bad. Same for Ned Stark, but he was more backed into a corner in that situation and, and kind of made a gamble with his decision that ended up costing him his head, which isn't great.
1: It's an L. You got to yeah, take the L.
0: It's it's a big L when you lose your yeah. head. I've often said this. <laughs> Gettle, Gettleman, though, I mean, this just – and I said this on the Kiston Solak reaction show to Odell Beckham uh, being traded. Breaking news, Odell Beckham has been traded to the Browns this is like the Statue of Liberty buried in the sand type moment to steal a line from my friend uh, Dan Carlin from Hardcore History. Like, this is what this feels like because they just burned the whole thing down. I would really have to go with Gettleman because Napoleon has had some major successes. I don't know if Gettleman's had that ever to have reached the types of heights that those that those two have. So I, I would go that, that Gettleman is the worst decision maker. Did you ask for the best one or the worst? Because the, the worst is definitely Gettleman. Yeah, yeah it's I Gettleman. Mean,
1: worst. Gettleman at least never became Hand of the King. Yep. Never became Emperor of France. And so the interesting thing, and I ask you this as an Eagles fan, Is there a scenario that he could pull off at 6 and 17 that would make you think that this was worth it? And is there a scenario that he can pull off at 6 and 17 that will make you think that this was an abject failure that he somehow was able to make worse? I have an opinion on the latter, but I don't know about the former.
0: Making it worse would be trading up to the second pick overall and drafting Daniel Jones. You obviously know my thoughts on Daniel Jones. I think you're in the same boat with me. I think Dwayne Haskins would be the smarter pick there. But we thought Haskins because we were like, he just needs to be a facilitator to Saquon and Odell. I mean, that was a key component to that. Just be a facilitator and get it to those guys. But yeah, that's that, that that living situation, as Mike Leach would say, has definitely changed. But yeah, I, I would say Daniel Jones is the worst case scenario. At six and seventeen, I mean, they can pick up a really, really good pass rusher at six. But they've also, in the past couple of years, lost Jason Pierre-Paul. They've lost Olivier Vernon. They've now lost Landon Collins. They're replacing him with a very old Antoine Bethea. And then at 17, man, he that really feels like a linebacker pick there with like a Devin Bush or you know what I mean? Like that's kind of like his style. So I don't yeah. know if there was a way this year that he could crawl himself out and make me fear the Giants. I was starting to get concerned about the Giants when they started adding to the offensive line with the trade for Zeitler. I thought that was a good trade for both shipping out Vernon, getting out from under that contract right now. But now it's to the point where I can't. See them doing anything that worries me for at least three years, which is go figure when they're going to have to pay Saquon Barkley to stay with the team after carrying it on his back 400 touches a year for the next three years.
1: Let me let me put this scenario out there. See, so you get your gauge your reaction to this real time. Add Oliver falls to them at six, hmm. and they get Jonah Williams at 17.
0: Hmm. I and like Now that. you've
1: got defensive line help. You've got the guy that could be your right tackle. You have the trade for Zeitler. Now you've got at least left tackle, left guard right guard, right tackle kind of scenario. And then you realize that, look, if you're going to be sort of rebuilding this situation, what's the point of a quarterback anyway? Hmm. And you roll the dice on Tua or Justin Herbert or somebody falling into your lap next year. It's Look, I'm development is not linear type of guy, but at least you'd have something where whatever quarterback you got next year would have at least some protection.
0: Here's the thing. If in two years they get Trevor Lawrence they still have Saquon Barkley, and their line is still intact to the point where they're building it out right now. And let's say they draft one of those offensive tackles. Maybe it's Cody, Cody Ford at six or, you know, Jonah Williams at 17, right. something to that effect. And that line is still intact, and they have some sort of semblance of a pass rush, and Gettleman is still there when that happens. Okay, Maybe we can talk then, but the problem is that can't be the plan and it's never been the plan and the plan coming into last year is not the pl- same plan that is coming right. into this year or even what it was, you know, three months ago. that That's my whole problem with it. But yeah, I, like I said, they could do a lot of things to set them up for future success right now. I won't be fearful of it until they draft. Trevor Lawrence, for example.
1: Yeah, I, I was on with um on I was on from Saturday to Sunday, uh, with Matt Caraccio and Paul Perticchisi last night, and they're both Giants fans, and <laughs> they were basically telling me before we hit record, and I'm not you know spoiling anything or anything like that by saying this. They don't think there's a plan. Uh, yeah. To your point, like the plan is something that gentleman writes down when he wakes up in the morning. He looks at his word of the day calendar. And he's like, ooh, stockpile. That's what I'll do. I will stockpile picks today. And then I'm gonna
0: sashi this with the Browns. And and then he
1: wakes up the next morning and the word of the day is burn. And so, oh, I'm gonna burn it to the ground today. So that's what we're gonna do. And so the the plan changes from day to day. And so you're right. This isn't a situation, and I know we're getting far afield from quarterbacks here, but it's, it's not fine. like he came in right now and had to deal with a previous regime that didn't come to a long-term deal with Landon Collins that gave Odell a long-term contract like these were decisions that his regime made right you know it, it's kind of like to bring it to the Ned Stark analogy he he shot his shot he whiffed, and now he's
0: got the proverbial little finger with a dagger to his throat. He's the one that extended Odell yeah. six months ago. Yeah. He's the guy. Yeah. That was his decision. It's not. It wasn't a regime change where someone else signed Odell. Exactly. He's not beholden to him. He made that decision. That was something he went all in on. And people are saying, oh, he's a malcontent. It's a good thing he's gone. If he was a malcontent now, he was a malcontent six months ago, and he was threatening to hold out. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, what what are you paying in terms of dead cap for him to catch passes from Baker right now? What is it? $16 million they are on the hook for him and Vernon alone for 24 million. They're on the hook total for dead cap money for 33 million. I believe it's 10 million more than any other team in the NFL this year. That is bad business. That that makes the cap real. The cap is yeah. not real. We say it all the time. The cap is not real with Howie Roseman. I get that. The cap is real when you make dumb decisions like that with your money.
1: Yeah, when you're basically paying like on Bell money to the ether
0: are we good on that one mark i think we bashed dave gettleman enough
1: <laughs> he's been taking a pounding on the timeline and it's deserved
0: <laughs> it i mean is. it
1: could end up panning out but it's going to be three four five years down the road yeah it's not going to be an immediate turnaround now and
0: how many gms have that kind of time
1: speaking of sashi he might not be there
0: right exactly. he might be
1: on the ocho breaking <laughs> down dodgeball by the time the Giants are good again.
0: That's my problem with it. Not many GMs in the NFL have that kind of time. Sashi found that out. And then, you know, John Dorsey comes in and just lights everything on fire, which is amazing. The Browns look incredible. At some point in the offseason, we are going to have to talk about what this Browns offense is going to look like. Adding Odell, having Baker at quarterback, who is fantastic on the deep routes that Odell likes to run, and actually accurate, unlike Manning, and actually throws it, unlike Manning. He's not a coward. And then you have Todd Monken, Just the air it out dude that Dirk Cutter at Tampa Bay was afraid to give play calling duties to. And Freddie Kitchens, who has also proven that he has some chops as an offensive coordinator there in Cleveland as your head coach. Them orchestrating all of that looks so dangerous. All of them are waking up dangerous.
1: This is one of those offenses that if you don't have Sunday Ticket, you go get it. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be like and I'm not saying right now that they're gonna go sixteen or no or anything like that, but it's like it doesn't even matter Patriots season <laughs> when you knew they were just gonna just dump points by the boatload on teams and it was gonna be yeah. fun to watch. like when Brady would drop back and he'd see Randy Moss on triple coverage, he'd be like, I don't care. I'm still throwing this. <laughs> it's this same kind of thing. you're gonna watch you want to watch this team every time they're on. and if I'm the NFL schedule makers, if you're going to go with that Thursday night opener of Chicago and Green Bay because it's NFL 100, fine. That Sunday night game better be Cleveland at New England. Oh, yeah. That's better be time. Cleveland at New England. Like <laughs> That's what a, we all want to see. We want to see Baker in this offense go into Foxborough, go up against Brady and Belichick. We want to see that on primetime to kick off.
0: One of the one of the most fun games from the regular season last year was the primetime game between the Chiefs and the Patriots. Oh, yeah. And this kind of has that same type of, type of oh, feel yeah. to it. Like both these teams can put up points. Yeah. That's going to be incredible. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna save my historical reference for later because we have some quick Eagles news that's not quarterback related to get to. We're gonna get back on track, Mark. I like that topic that you opened with. That's very good. things up. Yeah, gentle listener, if you have listened to the Kist and Solak show, if you have followed me on Twitter, if you have read my work for BleedingGreenation.com. You know that I've been slamming bodies through the table for the Eagles to sign former Pittsburgh Steelers linebacker L.J. Fort, a guy who was kicked around the league, then finally got a chance to start for the Steelers late last year. He played fantastic, and if you want to check him out, Week 17 against the Bengals was a lights-out performance. I've been talking about it for months now. I'm sure I'll be writing something up for BGN soon. Well, Howie Roseman, obvious listener of the show, heard me out. He bought what I was selling because the Eagles have signed linebacker LJ Fort to a three-year deal worth up to $10 million with some playing time incentives thrown in there, $1.9 million in guarantees, base salary of $1 million in 2019, $1.5 million in both 2020 and 2021. According to Jeremy Fowler of ESPN, the Steelers tried to keep Fort, but had other suitors, including the Eagles, who in my opinion, made a smart, low risk signing with the potential to be rewarded with significant playing time from a guy that is starving to earn a full-time gig at linebacker. He's a hard worker. He's a culture guy. Doesn't have to come off the field on passing downs. Good job, Howie. Thank you for listening. Mark in other news, and this is in your wheelhouse. uh, We've only briefly touched on this here at bleeding green nation here on the, here on the network, but the Eagles have put a second round tender on quarterback Nate Sudfeld, that's worth around $3.1 million. Going back to the preseason, he was throwing bombs around and had a darn good game against the Patriots. I know we've talked about him before on this show way back, but I want to revisit this in light of this news and make sure that everyone is current with our thoughts on the guy. What do you remember from Sudfeld and what are your overall thoughts on him as a guy that you developed throughout the years?
1: Well, what's been interesting watching this sort of rise of Sudfeld, when he was coming out of Indiana, I know we had a couple of people sort of in, in the draft Twitter world. You know, Jeff Lloyd, for example, was a huge Nate Sudfeld fan. And when he ended up in Washington, right. I thought it was kind of an interesting landing spot. Clearly, the Eagles have identified something with him, mm. and we can glean that from this sort of second-round tender. And I know it's on a high tender,
0: but- It's going to keep teams away. It's going
1: to keep teams away. With respect to Sudfeld, the quarterback, I think he's similar to Falls in that- When he saw sort of cover one situations, he saw press coverage on the outside. He has no qualms about being aggressive, no qualms about putting it deep. You know, that was one of his best things coming out of Indiana was the deep ball. That sort of stood out when you watched him on film. And that's translated well to the National Football League. There's clearly a plan for him. And what's interesting, Mike, was I was reading yesterday, you know, teams that might sort of be in the market for a veteran quarterback. And interestingly enough to me, Philadelphia was on that list in this article, which I thought was curious because I know Wentz is coming off of injury again, and he's had the ACL now with the back. And so you know, maybe there are some out there that somehow believe that he's injury prone, but that's a discussion for another time. You have Nate Sudfeld that they clearly value. They kept three quarterbacks at the time when not a lot of teams are doing that. Mm. With Sudfeld, they've got a backup that they trust. And so I'm more in the camplet. And when you add this little data point into the mix, it makes me think that I'm on the right track they view Wentz one Sudfeld is there too this might be one of those surprise teams that goes quarterback say sometime late day two early day three to maybe sort of get a guy that would be your next quarterback three that you can kind of work with Kind of developed. There are some air raid type guys that might fit with what Peterson is running. But I think they view Nate Sunfeld as their backup. And this isn't a situation where they're looking to sort of upgrade at the backup spot with a veteran. They've got their backup. And this second round tender, hmm. I think, speaks to that. The aggression is nice there there are some things that he could get better at, you know, getting faster with reads and things like that. I think, you know, sort of between the numbers is a bit of a question mark right now, but for what Philadelphia does, I think he fits for what we've seen that offense do, particularly with Foles, I think he fits that. I like the deep ball. And I think, they value him
0: yeah they've been very complimentary of him and obviously this move shows that they want to stick with him for a while and think he's someone that they can develop in that in that backup spot I like him I mean I love the way he played in the preseason he showed some balls he wasn't afraid to throw it around like some of these younger quarterbacks that kind of get in that situation and turtle up and want to play it safe he's not that type so I appreciate that from, from a guy in Philadelphia. Mark, some news that I just saw flash across my screen here as, as we're recording. Real quick, before we go to break, I'll throw this to you. Golden Tate and the Patriots, apparently there is a link there, former Eagles wide receiver Golden Tate. How would he fit? with the Patriots right now?
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, Tate has been one of the names sort of linked to New England during this offseason. They severely need to address the wide receiver position. Look, they put a low second-round tender on Josh Gordon. I'd be stunned if another team went to sort of acquire Josh Gordon right right now because, look, there are so many question marks. And so outside of Josh Gordon, you have two receivers on the Patriots roster that have actually caught a pass in a real NFL game. Julian Edelman? and Matthew Slater. Now, they just Mm -hmm. brought Philip Dorsett back, so there's three. But Hogan, obviously, is a question mark. They lost Patterson to Chicago, so they needed to address this wide receiver position and they needed somebody that could sort of step in and maybe replace some of what you're losing with Patterson, some of the I don't want to say like gadget type plays, but you know, the ability to be a, an offensive weapon and not just a pure wide receiver and take give you some of that. He can give you some stuff along the boundary because Detroit has hmm. used him along the boundary, which is something that while the Patriots do a lot of interchangeable stuff with their wide receivers, still you need somebody that can give you that kind of route tree obviously you know edelman typically works more inside whereas for example hogan was more of their boundary type guy and if hogan is going to be gone i think golden Tate is a nice little upgrade so i wouldn't be surprised to sort of see him end up in new england what's been interesting is this has unfolded the way that a lot of patriots sign-ins over the years typically unfold which is whether it's a guy that is a free agent that was on their roster they let him test the market and look if you're going to get a big payday I'll uh Trent Brown, Trey Flowers, congratulations. But if yeah. the market isn't there for you, it's not what you were hoping for, just call us yeah. whenever you're ready and we can talk money then. Same thing with Golden Tate. He probably thought, look, I was going to get some sort of big numbers. Well, when you've got Antonio Brown moving, when you've got Odell getting traded, when you've got Adam Humphreys, who apparently the Patriots made a late push for, trying to up the numbers there to stay mm-hmm. away from Tennessee, the market wasn't there for Golden Tate. And so now he ends up sort of that consolation prize and that sort of a second or even third wave of free agency where it's a softer market than he was expected in New England is sort of there to swoop in it. So I think schematically it would make sense and given the way his situation has unfolded and how the NFL at large seems to be viewing him, it's kind of your standard prototypical Patriots free agent on it if it ends up going down.
0: I agree. Yeah, it checks a lot of those boxes and I'm also saying that the Pittsburgh Steelers might be in on him as well. So we'll see what happens with Golden Tate as we work through this crazy period that is free agency. When we come back here on the QB Go Show, episode 17, we're going to be talking about some pro days, some quarterbacks slung the pigskin around on national television, including a guy that is very polarizing right now that we talked about a lot on this show. That's coming up next here on the QB Go Show on Bleeding Green Nation. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, We are back here on the QB Show, episode 17 brought to you by the fine folks at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. It's time to talk about some Pro Day performances. Of course, Kyler Murray had his nationally televised Pro Day. Uh, Charles Davis said that his throwing session was tremendous. Says no surprise based on his tape. Big arm, touch, accuracy. And I agree with that. If you watched his tape, You knew he threw a pretty ball. That's not a shock to anyone. You never thought he wouldn't be an extremely natural thrower of the pigskin. You saw the touch on his deep ball on tape, and you saw the natural thrower that he is on some particularly beautiful feathers in the red zone where he had to drop it into a laundry chute. He's capable of those type of throws. He's not just a one-speed quarterback. Didn't run the 40. I don't care. Didn't get his height retested. Again, I don't care. He measured at the combine. It's fine. Mark, you watched his pro day. What were your takeaways from Kyler Murray from Oklahoma?
1: well first, let's let's talk about pro days generally, because, yes, having been to one, if you thought sort of the combine was a controlled atmosphere, sort of a sterile tested environment, the pro day is that more I mean, because mm-hmm. you're doing it at your field, your practice bubble. You know, you're, you're throwing to guys that
0: you're much more familiar with for the most part. It's all choreographed, right? I mean, it's all set up to we're going to do five of these. We're going to do 10 of these.
1: Look, it's choreographed. It, it's scripted. Like you've, you've run this throw in session five, six, seven times, or at least most quarterbacks have. I would assume yeah. that Kyler Murray has done that as well. Although maybe not because apparently he didn't go to the Charlie Cashley School of Combine Interviews. So maybe he didn't. But for the most part, these are like highly scripted environments where you wake up in the morning, you know, my first five throws are hitch routes to the right. My next five throws right. are hitch routes to the left and so on and so on and so on. So, you know, the fact that he went 61 of 67, like he should have on 61 of 67.
0: like I am such a big fan of pro day completion percentages. They crack me up. Manziel's pro day. Medzel was fire. The market share and
1: completion percentage and air yards on a pro day are all that matters when it comes to scouting <laughs> quarterbacks. Okay, that's just so. Look, but at the same time, like this was his opportunity to do this. You know, he didn't have the combine throwing session that we saw from a, a Tyree Jackson or some of these other guys or a Jared Stidham that looked pretty well. He didn't get a chance to go on the gun and light it up like a Brett Rypien or a Will Greer again combine velocity and numbers, we take those with a pretty sizable grain of salt. It's a mountain of salt. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's Dragonstone-sized, okay? (laughs) But that being said, look, this was his opportunity to do that. And he had to go through the paces and wear the shorts and make the throws and things like that. And he did that. But you're not going to see absent some mechanical issues with a quarterback, which we will get to in a few moments. Absent that kind of scenario with a quarterback where you want to see footwork getting better or release point getting better and things like that you're looking at a pro day just to say, can he go through the motions and prepare for the test? Because what you've seen on film is what you saw in his pro day, a guy that can make throws from the pocket, a guy that has easy arm talent and easy velocity and can throw the deep ball with touch when he needs to, that can throw it from any arm slot and things like that. So look, he checks that box. Fantastic. We can all sort of move on. And look, he's probably going to end up on QB one on most boards. And the more and more I sit here and think about it and think about him versus Haskins, the more I'm starting to lead in, in Kyler Murray's direction anyway. And I've been somebody that's been sort of saying the pro Haskins side, but the more and more I sit down and try to grade these guys and try to look at them and try to say which guys can I see it working for and which guys can handle pressure better and respond to that kind of stuff, Murray's checking a lot more boxes, I think. And so, you know, this was the the day that he needed to have. Now everybody can move on and just wait to hear his name called first overall, I guess.
0: And Mark, I, I missed my opportunity to do the historical reference. I was going to do a whole Count Victor Lustig selling the Eiffel Tower and, and, oh. and equate it to the Eiffel Tower being the actual pro days and how people get overhyped for it and buy something that isn't actually real because a lot of it's spurious and – but. Yeah, so miss that opportunity. We'll get him next get time, him. Mark. We'll get him next time. There is another pro day that we can talk about here that I know you uh, you took a peek at. And that is the massive, what is he, 6'7", Tyree six Jackson from seven, Buffalo? man. He, six, he's seven. the mountain. Yeah, he is the mountain. So the mountain, Tyree Jackson from Buffalo had his pro day as well. Possibly an interesting late day two, early day three type of quarterback that you want to try and develop. What did you see from his performance? And I know some, and and I'll throw this out there for people that don't know Tyree or anything like that. I've seen some people suggest that, you know, maybe Tyree is like a day three guy for the Eagles to pick up and develop as their, as their number three. So there is that possibility. I'm not necessarily sold that the Eagles are going to go in that direction, but it has been spoken about before. But Mark, what did you see from Jackson?
1: Well, Michael, remember all that stuff I was just saying about how pro days are really, you know, scripted and they're controlled environments and they never really matter, well, just ignore all of that. Just just <laughs> throw it all out the window because here's a situation where I think it does matter a little bit because Jackson is sort of that raw, toolsy, arm talent, athlete type guy that we hear about every draft cycle or every other draft cycle that, look, you know, if you get him in and you develop him and you work with him and you get him coached up, he's going to be that guy, that diamond in the rough. And, that Logan Thomas feel, like that type of guy? Yeah, like that type of guy. And sometimes it does happen. You know, you could make the case that Dak Prescott was that kind of guy because I had serious problems with his accuracy and his placement, but he had the opportunity. Why? Well, an injury. But absent that, these toolsy type guys often don't get the chance to develop because they're not getting the reps that they need to develop because, look, you're not – once it comes to be regular season time, you're not making sure QB3 or even QB2 gets a ton of reps because you want them to develop. You know, you're getting QB1 ready to go out and take on Green Bay. And so, you no, know, that's one issue with him. The reason why I think his pro-day matters is when you watch him on film, he has this issue with his lower body where he will lock up from time to time that front leg. And there's a piece over at Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, MattWaldmanRSP.com, that I that just dropped uh, Thursday morning. Where I broke that down and I do a video on it and I pull quotes from different coaching clinics or even a book on mechanics, coaching quarterback passing mechanics by Steve Axman, who was Troy Aikman's offensive coordinator. Mm. And they all basically go to the same premise, which is this. If you lock up that front leg before you release the football, you have no prayer of making an accurate throw. Number one, you're either going to have a high release point or you're going to throw it straight into the turf. And I have examples of that sort of on film. And the other issue is – and Axman sort of gets to this – It happens with taller quarterbacks, Hmm. okay? Because you're taller, you have a wider base, sometimes you overstride, and that's when you see that lock up. Mechanics, for me, often go into sort of one of three buckets, and I'm somebody that has said mechanics don't matter until they matter. If the quarterback is putting the ball where it needs to be, when it needs to be there, I don't care how he gets there. I don't care how she throws it, like around head, between his legs, whatever. It doesn't matter. But if the ball isn't getting where it's supposed to be, when it's supposed to be there. And it's because of a mechanical issue, then they do matter. And so that's when you put them into one of these three buckets. Is it fixable? Think of Wets and his footwork and his elbow. When he came out Mm. They cleaned it up, he went to a throne coach goes on to have what was an MVP type season. So those are fixable mechanics, workable mechanics, Sam Darnold, right? He's got that loop to his throw in motion yeah. and it looks awkward at times, but because he has anticipation as a passer, because he has a pretty quick release once he gets that elbow and ball up to sort of parallel, it snaps out pretty quickly. It doesn't impact, you know, the time and emplacement of throws. And so right. those are workable mechanics right now. Then there are fatal mechanics. Tim Tebow. Yeah. Blake Bortles, who's just, you know, shipped out of Jacksonville fatal type mechanics that never get fixed and cause them to sort of peter out as nfl quarterbacks and tebow was pretty clear with Bortles how many times how many off seasons did we hear about him fixing his mechanics and it inevitably come week one there he perfect. is doing the same bad thing with his elbow and his mm-hmm. loops and so those are sort of fatal mechanics and i do wonder When it comes to Tyree Jackson and this issue with his front leg, it's not always there. He does seem to be working in the right direction. So maybe it is workable. Maybe it is even fixable. But because of the height, is it fatal? And interestingly enough, when you look at the history of six, seven quarterbacks and taller, you know, the NFL landscape is not littered with a bunch of tall guys that became great quarterbacks. I mean, there's Flacco, there's Foles. And then it sort of peters off. I mean, you want to make the case with Brock Osweiler. Mm-hmm. And so we spent a ton of time this offseason, you know, wondering about a small quarterback. Do we have fears about taller quarterbacks? And if so, is it because of this biomechanical issue? That might be a fun offseason project, but it brings us to Tyree Jackson, why I wanted to see his pro day. And at times when you watch the pro day, you know, I was watching on a granny like Instagram feed from <laughs> Sal Caraccio, who covers the bills up in Buffalo, you know, some of the throws – you didn't see it. Some of the throws you did. He had a, a post route in the red zone where he locked up that front leg and the throw was a bit high. So that's going to be an issue with him. That being said, look, if you've got a QB1 and a QB2 and you trust your quarterback coach to develop a guy and you think you're going to get him enough reps, you think that he can be a scout team type quarterback that can at least work on his mechanics while he's doing that, sure, draft him. I'm just a little wary and I do want to see the mechanics as they continue to unfold before I put them in one of those three bins, for example.
0: Really great points there. And I love the discussion that possibly six seven is the new five ten as far as what you might be concerned about with a quarterback, because the really tall quarterbacks do seem to have trouble especially with that front leg. I was just watching Jackson. I believe it was against Central Michigan the other day. And while he had some pretty, pretty, pretty throws, including one downfield that was just in a perfect spot, there were other times in the tape that you're like – man, I, I really worry about that never being fixed and it being a fatal flaw, like you said, that it's just going to pop up too much and really limit what he can be at yeah. the next level. And, so, and
1: What's interesting about Jackson is one of the points that was made by Greg Seaman, I believe, who was at the time the offensive coordinator and quarterback coach when he did this presentation for the University of Cincinnati. He's now, interestingly enough, the tight ends coach for the Cleveland Browns. So talk about mm. somebody that's in a nice little spot right now. But he talked about how sometimes when you lock up that front leg, it works like a break, you know, it sort of yeah. stops your momentum. And then you have what I've termed sort of a break in the biomechanical chain between upper body and lower body. And so, and I wrote about this a couple of years ago with Deshaun Kaiser, when you have that sort of lock in that front leg and it stops your momentum, you lose all that force you've been trying to generate with the lower body and it makes you become an upper body thrower. It turns you, it turns mm-hmm. you it's more of a pusher, more of a guy that's just relying on arm strength. Even when he does that, he yeah. had a throw against Toledo that went from the minus 19 to the plus 30 <laughs> left hash right in top of the numbers yeah. that he put in a great spot for a huge completion. And that's 51 at least by yardage, but then with left hash right number. So it's even more. It's probably closer to a 60-yard throw where he locked up that front leg. You could see almost that lower body like jerk. And he like just recoils basically, becomes an upper body thrower. And still uncorks an incredible deep ball. You see something like that, and you think, "Oh man, you know, we coach him up. Imagine yeah. what he can do when he's got clean mechanics." But that's often the fool's gold of all of this stuff. Of that's that's the Eiffel Tower. That's the Eiffel Tower. That's going after Castilian <laughs> Rock and ignoring High Garden.
0: You know, it's yeah. that
1: kind of mission that you think you're going to be able to do it, and it
0: never materializes well by the time you get your hands on these guys I mean these guys go through college and you see it at different positions too like they play at lower levels at competition and and these guys can just win with pure athleticism and strength and they haven't really developed their game because they don't have to with certain quarterbacks like Tyree like you said even when that leg locks up he's got the upper body torque and, and the ability to make those gigantic throws so I don't know if his coaching staff has ever really tried to work with him to the degree that like would have been really beneficial for him coming into the NFL and by the time you get there, you often revert back to – like you said with Blake Bortles, when you get into the fire and you get in that live firing range, you go back to what you know mechanically a lot of the times, yeah. 99 times out of 100. So that's what that's what I'm really concerned right. with. I think that's what you're saying as Yeah, well.
1: and what's interesting is – this is why when the discussions came up with Sam Darnold and a lot of people wanted to say, look, it's just like Bortles, you know, he's never going to fix those mechanics. And I, my response to that was always twofold. One, I think it's workable for the reasons I talked about the anticipation that he had that Blake Bortles did not. And the fact that he still has a pretty quickly release once he gets that ball coming up. Right. So that was part of it. The other part was this, he was a linebacker until like his sophomore year in high school. You know, you're talking about somebody that is pretty new to the position. And so muscle memory yeah. isn't ingrained as much with him. Yeah. So he can sort of unlearn and then relearn the right way if necessary. So even if the anticipation that we identified and the other stuff, it didn't work out, there's still a chance that it was going to be fixable because he's so new to the position. When you get somebody that's been playing the position since they were nine, since they were 10, that's hard to unlearn. Because especially mm. like like you said, you you could look fantastic thrown on 7-on-7 seven seven come August. But when it's September 9th and you're in live fire situations, you're going to revert to what has
0: worked for you in the past. And sometimes that's the bad mechanics that have gotten you to this point to begin with. And, and speaking of that, look, I, I'm 34. What are you, 40? You're a man, right? I'm a man. I'm 42. We can't fix our bad habits, but we thank you for listening to this episode of the QB Sco show. Mark, you have anything else for the gentle listeners today? I thought that was a really good discussion. It was a fantastic discussion. If
1: we were going to list the bad habits, we'd be here for another hour on just <laughs> mine alone. I mean, look, we—I am a flawed, flawed, flawed human being. But always fun to talk about quarterbacks. Always fun to sprinkle in some Game of Thrones references. I just got done. I don't want to spoil it. it can, Is talking about Season 6 spoiling stuff?
0: Okay, spoilers right now. If you have not seen Season 6 of Game of Thrones, you're going to want to tune out, skip ahead, whatever you need to do. That's the season I'm currently going through right now. I just got past the Battle of the Bastards, so I'm entering into the season finale.
1: Yeah, see, I just got done watching Jon Snow execute Sir Alistair and Ollie and all the traitors that stabbed him. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a tough one. He, he, he you see it. He, he wants to cut Ollie down. He, he wants to, but he knows he can't. Yeah. And that's a yeah. that's a, that's a tough moment. And then you've got Arya and Bravos when she's blinded. A girl has no name.
0: I do like the part where uh, Jon Snow he he uh, he calls out Sir Payne and is about to. Is it Sir Payne? Is that is that the guy or is that the guy with no tongue? Who who was the guy that was at the no wall? Tongue. Who's the guy at the wall? Jonah slint. The, guy, Slint, the coward yeah. guy that like hid in yeah. the room with Gilly. And he's like, I'm a coward. I admit it, I'm a coward. And Jon Snow's just like, nah, your head's going off. but nah. You're going to have to take this yeah. L. You're taking, taking this, this L. 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 Yeah, <laughs> again, you lose your head. It's a big L to take. You can't come back from that one. Jano Slint, Dave Gettleman, taking <laughs> L's. <laughs> And that's going to come full circle. That's been the QB SCO show episode 17 here on Bleeding Green Nation. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five star review if you like what we're doing on here. Uh, subscribe, share it with your friends, steal your girlfriend's phone, give us five stars on that account. Whatever you need to do, we appreciate you here at Bleeding Green Nation. Thank you again for listening to the QB SCO show.